This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, uh, welcome to everybody. I'm excited to be here talking to Brendan O'Connor about his book, Broad, well, sorry, Blood Red Lines. It's a tricky thing. I'm not going to say anything about mixing up L's and R's here, but you know, <laughs> you can make the joke yourself. Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right. Uh, and uh, we're going to be here, I think, for the next hour or so. And we have a, you know, if you want to ask questions at the end, you can do that. But um, I was very excited to do this. I've known Brendan for a few years now. I've always admired both of his, you know, both his work, obviously, but also the passion with which he, you know, thinks and, and writes and uh, just how everything is sort of out there with him. So, yeah, Brendan, I'm excited to do this. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for being in conversation with me, Jay. I appreciate it. I know this is like I haven't I've never been on this side, or actually I have, but yeah, I've I always think. Um, well, when does the conversation start? But anyway, it's not so important. <laughs> so I I just wanted to start this with a pretty you know this, some of the preface of your book goes into this, but you know I found it really interesting. Now, like what 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 sort of made you want to write this book, this specific book? And if you want to give a little sense of like what it's about as well, that I think that would help orient some of the the people who are watching right now. Yeah, so I came to uh, writing about the far right and various uh, nationalist and eventually proto-fascist organizations and movements in the United States at the very end of the Obama administration. Uh, at the time, I was working at a website called Gawker, which was, uh, we later found out, under a sort of disguised, shadowy legal assault by the uh, Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel, who also, we later discovered, had some sorts of tangential uh, relationships with people who were involved in the then nascent alt-right movement. Um, and so as I was kind of coming to be aware of these different threads, uh, it seemed to me that, I don't know, like there's there's something, there's something connecting all of these things. I can't exactly quite make sure make make sense of what it was. I definitely got made fun of by my uh, coworkers a lot for being sort of conspiratorial and like doing the kind of like <laughs> red twine um, corkboard sort of thing. But the book is really and is is my attempt to pull together a lot of these different threads and try and make sense of what the whole is here. Like what is the totality of these relationships? How did these things happening at the level of the the billionaire and donor class and, and you know, the capitalist class relate to what's happening in the street in terms of uh, various militia and street fighting organizations and how, you know, what, what direction are all of these things heading in? Um, 
yeah, it's sort of uh, trying to make sense of the the array of social forces uh, on on the right um, and how they're going to react to the historical trends that we're all living through. Yeah, it seems like you know, like part of the book's project then is to take some of the footage that we all see, right? Which is whether it's somebody wearing like a Viking hat storming the Capitol, or whether it's somebody like an online troll or something like that, or or even somebody like Weave, right? Like who's just sort of a Nazi, and but exist and trying to make trying to organize in in some sort of way that makes sense that um, show some interconnectedness. Was there one thing that you fixated upon or that you saw early on in your research or when you were thinking about writing this book where, you know, outside of the teal stuff, like where you're like, oh, you know, shit, there's like a, you know, like, like you saw like the whole constellation for a second and then, and then you, know, you, you, you begin your career as like a seeker. Like, did you, did you, was there anything like that where you, where you, where you saw the matrix? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I had, uh, I had done a couple of stories on various Nazis. Um, and uh, while I was, uh, working at the time at, um, Gizmodo media, uh, and my editor, Tim Marchman was like, okay, like you need to take a break from the Nazis, like work on something else. Um, and I started looking at the different funding groups behind, uh, nativist immigration policy. Uh, cause I had long had an interest in kind of dark money networks and these like think tanks and nonprofits in DC, um, and came to realize that okay, these people aren't Nazis exactly, but like (laughs) there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of ideological resonance. Um, And so that was, I think, when a lot of pieces started started to click together uh, for me. And and I'm talking specifically about the the Tanton Network, um, Federation for American Immigration Reform, Center for Immigration Studies, Numbers USA. These are organizations that have been around for decades, but have reached a level of influence in the Trump administration that um, they really, until very recently, could only have imagined. Okay, so yeah, let's back up a second then. Like, why, why don't you tell us who John Tanton is? You know, um, because a lot of your book, the first half of the book, I would say, really focuses on him, and it's like a really compelling history in which, you know, like you said, there's a lot of following the money, right? Um, you know, where did the, where does this money go? But there's also like a sort of intellectual history that you lay out about him that I found to be totally fascinating. Like I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I had heard of him, but I wasn't really aware of, of his intellectual background or anything like that. So why, why don't you just tell us about who he is and, and like why you spend so much time on him? Yeah. So John Tanton, uh, was a, uh, ophthalmologist in Petoskey, Michigan, um, who outside of his professional life uh, was a very avid and dynamic um, political activist who came out of the conservationist movement of the late 60s and early 70s. um, And specifically was influenced by a current within, not even a current within, I mean, it was really a pretty major um, aspect of the, of the conservationist movement at that time, um, 
the idea, this anxiety and concern over uh, a population explosion, demographic uh, chaos that was precipitation precipitated by this book, The Population Bomb. Um, this was a big part of environmentalist and conservationist discourse in the late 60s and early 70s. And over time, that anxiety started to fade within the movement as a whole, but there were factions within it that continued to fixate on this, and it sort of mutated and merged with uh, the you know longstanding American nativist uh, sentiment and took on kind of eugenicist aspects. Um, I think he, and this was influenced by his training as uh, as a doctor and someone who's interested in, you know, a kind of applying ideas that he had about like nature and like the natural order of things to the way that he th thought society ought to be organized. Um, and so he, through his connections in the movement, came to have a relationship with a woman named Cordelia Scave May, who was uh, a, an heiress to the Scaife and Mellon families of Pittsburgh. Her older brother, Richard Scaife, um, had a huge influence on the conservative movement and his the way that he distributed his money over the course of the better part of four or five decades um, created a lot of the major right-wing institutions that we're familiar with today. But Cordelia um, was really focused on immigration and uh, was pretty much John Tanton's primary benefactor for the better part of the 80s, 90s, and early aughts. And with her money, he was able to create this network of organizations um, that all had have slightly different roles. Um, the Center for Immigration Studies, for example, is a sort of pseudo-academic think tank um, that gives a kind of white-collar, um, policy-minded perspective on uh, on nativist politics, whereas Numbers USA, which is, you know, within the same organizational lineage, the role of that institution is to just like turn out people to like make phone calls, uh, send faxes. This was a big thing that they were good at um, to just harass, you know, uh, uh, representatives and senators in Congress. Um, and Tanton was pretty instrumental in getting this network up and running. Um, eventually, he stepped back from it as he got older, uh, took on a kind of a life of its own, but he really made his imprint. And so I think I thought that understanding um, where he came from, how he thought about these things, his uh, I was able to review his archives uh, in in digital form, fortunately. Um, and there's a lot of really, really dark um, stuff in there that illuminates kind of his thinking. Oh, okay. Like what was going on in the late sixties and early seventies? That was sort of the background for this, because in reading the book and thinking a little bit about you know this moment right now, which you know we'll discuss a lot later, it seems like there's some parallels. You know, like immigration was being discussed a lot 
because of the 1965 Immigration Act, right, um, which you go into, which sort of reverse a lot of stuff, like the Chinese Exclusion Act and like some of the limitations of immigration from, you know, Southern Europe and, and Asia. And then, you know, there's obviously like what I think some people call like political instability or, or whatever, right, with like protest <laughs> movements going mm-hmm. on everywhere so like do you do you see tanton as sort of being uh you know like growing out of all of that or do you think that this is sort of a, you know like like is there something about that moment that that necessitated him or that created him yeah that's a good question i think that in the early years of his activist life it wouldn't really be fair even to describe him as a reactionary because he was within the mainstream of kind of upper middle class liberal discourse around these kinds of questions. I think that, you know, as the years and decades progressed as, and he held on to these ideas, the kind of wider, economic shifts and social shifts, whether it's from like the various civil rights movements that emerged out of the sixties and seventies, and then the economic restructuring of the seventies and eighties recontextualized the ideas that he was pushing, um, and brought him into contact as well with, a kind of different cohort of thinkers that were carrying forward a like those kinds of more traditional uh, nativist ideas that you know, um, were you know that they that the 1965 legislation had tried to um, combat, uh, but ultimately. They, they were able to endure and then rear up again. So it's like, it's coming out of conservation. Then, you know, just correct me if I'm mischaracterizing this, if I'm oversimplifying it. It's like a guy who wants who sees like the untamed wilds or whatever and wants to keep them. And he reads like some Malthusian argument about population bomb. And then mm-hmm. he's like, okay, well, we have too many people here already we can't have all these people coming over from China and spitting on the ground and littering everywhere. We can't have all these people. Although the relationship with Mexico at the time was a little bit more complicated and basically had an open border at the time. But you know, like we can't have all these like people from southern, like immigrants from Southern Europe, which I always referred to, or Eastern Europe, which is always just meant Jews, right, at the time, coming over and like bespoiling our our pure nature is that sort of the ideological background for a lot of it for for where he was thinking yeah um there's one of his letters to cordelia escape may in particular he talks about taking trips with his wife to the to the american southwest to the border regions to go bird watching and there's like one location that he was particularly fond of where you could find interesting birds to look at. And then also looking a little bit further out in towards the horizon, see people uh, 
making the border crossing. And he was really fixated on this. And these ideas were very much intertwined for him. And I think that the the violation in his view of national sovereignty and the violation and like a despoiling of uh, the American pristine, pristine wilderness were very much intertwined. Um, and when you, when I, you know, I, Tanton was not the only person whose ideas influenced this network. And there's another guy, Sidney Swensrud, who was a, uh, a longtime friend of the Scape family and a, a, a Texas oil man um, who was actually a high level executive in Gulf oil uh, in one of his kind of oral self oral histories. Also, this is the thing that like all of these people like have such high visions of themselves that they are like hiring people to just listen to like transcribe what they are ta- talking about their own lives. It's very, it's yeah. very bizarre. And then like these Mr. things get put Mr. into Mr. Archives. Burns hiring Steven Spielberg <laughs> out to make his, <laughs> to make his biopic. Yeah. Right. So in, 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 in Sidney Swensrud's one of his oral self oral histories, uh, he explains his idea of like why it was important to build up these networks um, because the population explosion being driven by immigration led to a decline in basic in like the quality of life. And the example that he gives is that if there's too many people, then you can't find good parking. (laughs) (laughs) And, and then like kind of in like a later breath, like he's talking like he's talking about like the, you know, it needing to maintain the like primacy and sanctity of like Western civilization and European values. And so like the, there's a very strange kind of conflation of these, you know, of barely coded brutal racism with very mundane kind of self-interest that, Keeps that you know I found came up again and again in in my research on how these people were thinking about it, um, thinking about their project. Great, like uh, like okay, so we have this. We're at this point where where Tanton is using this money and setting up all these you know like little organizations all around D.C. and New York or wherever think tanks, you know, uh, call centers basically, right? Which you know it reminds me of. These conservative actors seem to have this playbook, right? Like uh, the guy who sort of undid the Voting Rights Act and then went after Harvard for affirmative action. Same thing, you know? It's like 15 different organizations that he's set up. You know, uh, all of them have some association with the Federalist Society, right? Um, And then those places have associations with Supreme Court justices that these guys clerked for when they were at, you know, Yale Law or whatever like that. And that you have this sort of very obvious network and nobody really works at any of the places individually, but they still exist and money gets funneled in and out of it. So how do you go from that to having an idea sort of metastasize out or does it, you know, like, does it, does it, does it co- go out into the public in some sort of way? So I think what is particularly um, vexing about something like 
you know, anti-immigrant sentiment and tracking how this idea takes shape and is articulated is that it is not, it's not as though, you know, the United States required John Tanton to come along for it to be popular, to be xenophobic or nativist um, or racist. I think that what Tanton was able to do is create sort of intermediary organizations that bridged the grassroots or kind of organic vulgar nativism with the language and the discourse of the kind of like hallways of hallways of power and the ruling class. Um, and for a long time, this network was on the fringes of the Republic, I mean, of both parties, but really of the Republican party for a couple of reasons. One being that I think, where he where he and Cordelia Scipione might have found allies, they would they that was actually more di- a more difficult proposition, partly because they supported abortion access, not because they have any had any great fondness for like reproductive justice, but because they just saw it as yet another way to kind of keep population numbers down. Um, but this, you know, obviously made them persona non grata in in many conservative circles, whatever their reasoning. But the other the other aspect of this is that there are parts of even the conservative donor class that require migrant labor and require a kind of balance in the way that. Uh, migrant labor is managed and and how people crossing the border and getting access to you know the labor market in the united states um you know they're they're the the capitalists don't actually want a completely closed down border um that doesn't work for them and it particularly didn't work for them um a couple of decades ago so for that reason as well, I think they were kind of kept at the kept at the fringes um, with this, you know, nationalist populist moment that we're entering into. That calculus uh, is has been upended a little bit. It seems like this sort of stuff, where you know, like obviously the intellectual, um, the pe- the intellectual heirs uh, to this type of thinking are people like Stephen Miller or somebody like that, right? It seems like all of this was very fringe until 2016, almost. You know, I remember talking to somebody who worked on uh, in Washington, and they were like, Stephen Miller was like the guy that we knew who would send insane emails and just spam everybody in the in Congress, you know, about mm-hmm. immigration stuff. Nobody took him or Jeff Sessions seriously, and then suddenly they're elevated into this role. I mean, is was it that was it that much of a shift where it was like fringe until Donald Trump? was the president basically or, or were there moments where it like became more influential? I think there were moments where it was more influential. The, there were attempts at, under both the Bush and the Obama administrations to pass 
so-called comprehensive immigration reform, both of which failed for reasons that are probably kind of overdetermined. Like there's many different factors that that contributed to both of those legislative legislative pushes failing. But the Tantan Network did intervene in those moments, um, and particularly during the Obama administration, um, pushed massively against that legislation. And I don't know if it was the, I don't know if I can say that it was the determining factor, but they did, you know, they did have weight enough to be able to make themselves, make their influence felt. And so I think that there were kind of signals that, this was going to be a rising power. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, but it's also true that, you know, Stephen Miller, he, he, he was a crank, you know, at the time um, until kind of the ground shifted underneath everybody's feet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's crazy to think about. Sometimes I think about it, it's just like this, these fringe guys are just like having, dinner together at the bright art house and screaming about stuff and no one's paying attention to them and suddenly they're all in the white house you know like gorka and yeah and miller um all right so let's 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 go uh let's go into the you know closer to the present because i think that we we have a general sense of like what tanton did you you write about this scene at michigan state university with richard spencer and where you where you were there and um i wanted to read part of your book and i just wanted to because I think it's something that's discussed, and I don't think we need to talk about it through the lens of like you know sort of the Twitter culture war about cancel culture or whatever. But I, I wanted to get your sense of it, which is you, know, you describe you describe what's happening, which is what you would expect to happen. There's counter protesters. There's people trying to deplatform. There are people who are trying to deplatform the deplatformers. And you write, I felt the whole affair take the shape of an absurd pantomime, a symptom of having watched this exact scene play out in person on YouTube and on Twitter so many times over the past few years. The sense of absurdity receded as soon as I looked out into the fascist eyes, dull with hatred and fear, or listened to the racial slurs and Sig Heil spat like poison, or when I saw amid it all, amid it all Matthew Heimbach's delighted smile. Now, Matthew Heimbach is sort of like a alt-right figure. Um, yeah, like, like, what, how, how do you think about this stuff? Like, do you, do you, do you find it absurd? Do you, do you, like, how, how, I, I think that one of the things that we never really quite got a sense of, or even though, you know, a lot of people wrote about it and covered it, was like, how seriously do we, do we take these, these people like Matt, um, like Richard Spencer and, you know, like Milo and Matthew Heimbach? Um, and I, I, you know, I personally just have no idea because, you know, some days I'd be like, guys are dorks you know like what, what are they going to do to me but then some days it seems much scarier like what, what, yeah. what was your sense of it i mean i also yeah we kind of feel that that pendulum swing um i think that <laughs> you know we can say well it's a dialectic and yeah. uh they they are they are both clowns and dangerous um and there, you know, there is a, a relationship between those two, those two poles. Um, I think that, how do I think about it? I mean, it's hard to say because 
I've covered like you, like many of these kinds of events and at most of them, nothing happens. <laughs> um, or, you know, it, what it like there, there's, there's a dynamic where, um, you know, the word will get out that the proud boys or some other fascist organization is going to hold a demonstration in, in some city. And so the local, local anti-fascist, local left-wing organizations, maybe some unions, maybe some nonprofits, will organize a counter demonstration. And then if this is successful and there's a huge mobilization, oftentimes the initiators <laughs> of this whole affair will just not show up or, or, we'll, or, we'll, or we'll pull out or we'll hide behind the police. And then what it ends up turning into a kind of confrontation just between protesters and, and the the police but then sometimes you know you have something like what happened on uh, what happened last wednesday or maybe the mobilization isn't as effective and you've got 500 fascists and then 500 <laughs> people from dsa uh and or you know or, or 500 kids in 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 black masks uh and things get a little bit, things get pretty ugly. Um, and there isn't, you know, it, it turns into something really dangerous and really violent and, and really, um, and really scary. So I don't know that I really have a kind of like categorical sense of like, this is the right thing to do. This isn't the right thing to do. Um, or like how to even think about how to even think about it in a straightforward way. Cause I think it's like totally contingent and totally, um, contextual on, I don't know, like other kind of variables in the ongoing, <laughs> the, ongoing oh, yeah, struggle. Like, the other reason I ask is because like, like you said, I, I covered a lot of these, you know, um, I saw all this Patriot prayer stuff in Portland, you know, a couple of years ago, three years ago, maybe, um, where they would, there would be like 200 cops in riot gear. There'd be like, I don't know, 150 kids in black. And then there'd be like 40 kids who, um, and maybe the Oath Keepers or something like that who are armed, right? And they would do some free speech rally and Joey Gibson would talk and, you know, like a bunch, the stars of the alt-right Pacific Northwest would talk and they're all like wearing costumes and stuff, you know? And they would, I was working for a television show and they would come up to me and they'd be like, CNN is ISIS. And, but they're clearly just trying to, they're like, they, they're just being stupid, you know, like they're just trolls. Yeah. And at the time I took them very not seriously, you know, like, you know, part of it was, what are they going to do to me? You know, but like, it's like, um, but it didn't seem like there was any threat of violence within these people to me, you know, and there's all these contradictions as well that I found that, um, disturbing like uh you write about this somewhat where it's just like i would see the proud boy this there's this amazing scene that i think i've talked about before but it's just like i was in portland and you know like there's the proud boys they're somewhat diverse for portland you know like it's not like they're all white and um mm -hmm. some of the alt-right guys were not white either and they're being sort of confronted by these people carrying black lives matter signs and every single person on the other side was white and they just start making fun of the people for being all white, you know? So you have these like moments where it feels so absurd. Right. And you're just like, this really is cosplay kids, you know, and 
they could you could interchange them. It doesn't matter what side they're on. They just chose a side, right? Like that was sort of mm. the sense that I got out of it. But right now it feels very different. You know, like it feels like people are capable of violence, obviously. Um, do you think something has changed in the last few years or like what, like what, what, what has changed? Like even, even this stuff with like, you know, the scene that you, that you detail about Richard Spencer at Michigan state. Like I went to see Charles Murray speak, not, you know, not as a fan, but I went to cover Charles Murray <laughs> speaking at Michigan at the university of Michigan. And it was the same thing, you know, it's like a big attempt to deplatform, but it was clearly a trap. Right. And it was yeah. like that, that, they were doing it so that he would get deplatformed so they could film video to put online. And then they wrote like an op-ed in the New York times about it. Right. So like it's a full trap. Um, and at the time I was just thinking like, you know, the thought that I had about it was like, look, this is not worth it. You know, like we keep getting, we on the, on the left or progressives, whatever, keep getting tricked, you know, <laughs> like, mm. like we're just running right into the flame. Uh, like, uh, has anything changed about that? Like, it feels like it's changed, obviously, because of what happened last Wednesday, et cetera, et cetera. But like, you know, like w- what has changed since that moment where it just felt so absurd all the time? Well, I mean, I don't think, <laughs> I mean, I do think it does still feel absurd <laughs> in this yeah. much as, you know, there are, there's a, there's a sense of spectacle and performance that imbues, I think, these kinds of, this conflict with this really kind of surreality. And I mean, the best example of that is, you know, is the guy in, in, in the Viking outfit, um, but also, like, that guy is a very influential kind of QAnon uh, 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 preacher. And so the fact that he, you know, is wearing this costume, I don't know, I find myself having to kind of remember to look past it. Um, I think that one of the things that has... I think there's a few different things that have changed. Um, one just being a kind of more robust, disciplined and mature, although still very small, like left in the United States. Um, but the other thing that is changing is that there are like, now there are guys that you might have seen in Portland with the Patriot Prayer demonstrations who have been doing that like on a semi-regular basis for years and have who are like kind of like hardened street fighters. And what we saw in Wednesday, on Wednesday was that the Proud Boys and others, you know, were basically a kind of disciplined cadre within this spontaneous outburst that knew what they were doing and knew how to kind of move in a, um, in a street, in, 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 in the, in the chaos of the street. Um, and that is, I think, I think we should admit that like, while the situation often presents us with kind of these absurd images, that reality is, is pretty scary. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, made me 
a lot more afraid of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you're always waiting. You're just like, well, when are they going to yeah. do something other than punch each other right. in the face? You know, and right. one of them shoots some, you know, like somebody gets shot in Portland and you feel like it's going to escalate. And then it, you know, it sort of escalates, but then you watch all the videos and it's still the same 50 guys screaming at each other and occasionally beating each other up. But Obviously, this was an escalation. We'll talk about that at the end. I want to talk a little bit more about the book here, which is, you know, you talk a lot about the way that economics influence immigration and the way that it uh, changes the way in which Americans tend to view the value of people who come over here, right, of, of immigrants mm-hmm. undocumented or even um, people who come over here on visas, whatever. And you write, in the neoliberal era, this has changed. Technological advances mean that firms can do ever more with fewer workers and favorable trade policies allow them to do so in the cheaper, not to mention more dangerous conditions of the global south. This allows, this is a quote, quote, this allows anti-immigration groups such as nativist organizations or organized labor or the anti-immigration mass public to have more of a voice in deciding immigration policy leading to restrictions, Peters argues. So like the the question that I had here was more just, um, okay, we're back. Sorry. Technical (laughs) issue. Um, So uh, I'm not sure how much you got of this, but I'll just read it again. Um, In the neoliberal era, this has changed. Technological advances mean that firms can do ever more with fewer workers and favorable trade policy has allowed them to do so in the cheaper, not to mention more dangerous conditions of the global south. Quote, this allows anti-immigration groups such as nativist organizations or organized labor or the anti-immigration mass public to have more of a voice in deciding immigration policy leading to restrictions, Peters argues. So the question that I wanted to ask was like, you know, if this is true, right, like if, if jobs are being, you know, place wherever that we don't maybe need the size of the immigrant labor force that we have. Do you see that as being the the big determining factor of how the future of immigration policy goes from here on out? Like, will people like Tanton or the heirs of Tanton, will they win out just because maybe there's not as pressing of a need like that, that check on all of this sort of stuff, which was that, well, we kind of need these people to come here and work in these places. If that no longer exists, do you think, do you see a swing in immigration policy? I don't think that that is, you know, the single determining factor. I think that's part, you know, that's one critique that I would make of, of Margaret Peters's excellent book um, <clears throat> is that I, I don't think that, uh, this is the only factor in what decides immigration policy. Um, you know, the other, the other things that, you know, is that the American labor movement, which for a long time did back a lot of anti-immigration legislation or, or opposed reforms, um, has really swung in a different direction and is now, uh, you know, with with some exceptions, uh, tends to embrace and recognize the struggle for migrant justice as a part of the labor struggle. I think that one thing that kind of complicates the story, too, is that um, there are certain industries that are fixed in in place that can't be moved overseas, or at least can't yet, that are very reliant on migrant labor in like within the United States. Um, that's agriculture, the service industry, 
uh, even construction and development. And so these are industries that that still need migrant labor. Even even something like even Silicon Valley requires a kind of like uh, white collar migrant labor. Um, and so I think that the shift in um, the shift that that Peters is describing in where manufacturing happens, um, where basically where the wor- workforce is located, I think it makes it it contributes to the kind of sense of uh, the, it contributes to the to the upheaval, but it doesn't necessarily mean that um, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily guarantee that like well like nativist politics are now going to be the order of the day and that because the capitalists were the only thing that was stopping that from happening to begin with i, I don't think that is really that's not really the story that i see okay the reason why i asked is because i you know when i read that i i thought that if this is true or if you know there's something to it then it seems like you know there's a it's uh it's going to be difficult going forward to try and conceptualize an argument for immigration and you know i i only was thinking about that just because i had spent so much time during the pandemic talking to people who work in essential worker populations here in california where i live uh the vast majority of those people are latino you know like a mm-hmm. lot of them are 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 immigrants recent immigrants migrant workers people on work visas or people who are undocumented and there is no concern at all about their health and well-being during the pandemic, right? And so I was wondering, like, now that you might expect, it's America in a lot of ways, right? We live in this country, but there seemed to be like almost a callousness towards it that seemed new, and that um, and that your book touches upon, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, what do you do? You, are you as hopeless as I am about the future of all this, or, or do you? It seems like you're not. It seems like you have a, <laughs> you have a, you have, you might. Um, you might have a good argument here for, you know, some sort of solidarity or movement that could, that could stop some of this. Well, I do think that, um, I mean, I think that you are absolutely correct that the pandemic has made the just kind of innate callousness um, towards suffering in this country, like in unavoidable, it can't, can't, it can't be explained away or kind of papered over. Um, particularly when it comes to people who are not citizens. Um, I think though that, you know, it, it is not, we're not doomed to a world where this is universally and eternally true in so far as there is the, I think we're seeing signals that there is the beginning of a, a mass movement or, or kind of really like multiple mass movements um, that are not only articulating a, a, a critique of this way of organizing society, but are offering you know, a positive vision for it to be otherwise. Um, and 
although the uprising of the summer kind of ended with not exactly a whimper, but it didn't create the kind of, it didn't necessarily create lasting institutions that can kind of carry the, carry the struggle forward. Um, I think, I think there are, there are positive signs that there is a a vision of kind of working class solidarity in this country. Um, that is, you know, it's not, it's, it's not straightforward. It's not without its internal, its own internal contradictions, but, um, I don't know. I like, I, I, I'm, I'm not as, I'm not quite as despairing, uh, but there's definitely a lot of work still to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that sometimes you can get into these rabbit holes where you believe that nobody cares about this stuff, but you know, I, I think it's just some people on the left are very, you know, have sort of aligned themselves with some of this nativist thought and they tend to be very loud. But, you know, on, on the whole, most people who are progressives were on the left, you know, still still believe in all these ideas, I think, you know, especially if they are internationalists in any sort of way. Yeah. So um, and I think that the number of people who can be convinced of that are higher than the number of people who are going to take a reactionary position because it's you know, whatever. It gives them some sort of media adjacency status. Um, all right. So uh, let's let's then talk about. You know, we're running out of time a little bit. So let's talk about what happened on Wednesday, because it's very relevant <laughs> to your book here. You've written this book about, you know, the the not the all right, but, you know, the how the right was funded, the creation of this sort of idea. You have these tensions points where you go to Portland, you have these tension points where you go to Michigan State and see Richard Spencer and then it all explodes. You know, like, uh, so what do you make of all of that? Because I still have no idea what to make of it. First of all, I didn't really like I almost missed all of it because I was sort of in a hole and I was not. But then I like caught up and I was like, oh, my God, what's happened? I'm still in this like, <laughs> oh, my God, what happened type of mode. So, like, what, what, what happened? <laughs> I mean, I still I, I'm I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, I think basically you know, with with every with every like half hour that passes, there's another like explosive investigation <laughs> yeah. about, um, <clears throat> you know, the. You know, cops or military or off-duty military uh, who or who were participating in it, um, or I don't know. I, I think I, all that, that is just to say that I am still I am still trying to grasp the the contours of of what happened on Wednesday because I think that it is very complicated. Um, I think that there are a lot of different currents feeding into the kind of tide that crested um that maybe that's not the imagery that i want to use because i i because cresting implies that it's now receding and i don't really think (laughs) i don't really think that that is what is happening um but yeah i think i think that what we saw on wednesday was a really explosive indication of the future the or not the future but just the next few years of the of what the far right is going to be doing um i think that the sort of anti-state orientation is now back 
in the four as it was during the Obama administration. Um, I think that we will see more attacks on somewhat paradoxically or somewhat paradoxically on law enforcement and police. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I think that, I, I think this is uh, this is the, the shape of things to come. You see this as like the starting jumping off point for something like all the things that you had been studying with some sort of confusion about how seriously you're supposed to take it. Like you feel like they've, uh, it's like a Pokemon and they've evolved into that. I don't know if that's a correct reference, but you know, they've, they've turned into something. I mean, else. yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, like I would say that <laughs> like you would say like, it's I just like when Charizard becomes whatever, you know, or like, when, no, no. I mean, like I, like I, I, I would like, I've spent a few, like I've spent the past few years, like thinking about these trends and I'm not going to somehow turn around and be like, Oh no, like, I don't think any of this matters actually. <laughs> like, this, this, was all, this was all, this was all a fluke. Yeah. Um, but I also I like I try very hard not to catastrophize or to overstate um, the threat or the danger posed by this movement, these organizations, these individuals. But that being said, I do think that we are on the cusp of a period of open political violence that is not monopolized by the state um right you write about this in your book you say like as the crisis that began in 2008 deepens these irregular forces will be called upon ever more frequently to defend the political economic order that produced the crisis itself to defend the border to to discipline revolting workers and to maintain the rule of the white minority like do you do do is that what you think was happening on wednesday like a, a sort of jumping off point for those people, you know, as, as ridiculous as it was, as tragic as it was and as stupid as it was, which I think we can all three of those adjectives really apply. Obviously it's also a huge call out, right? Like, holy shit, this is possible, you know? Um, and, uh, we can do anything. Like if we can storm the Capitol, what else could we possibly do? You know? And it, it's, uh, I mean, it, uh, you see it at, at every type of protest, you know, where somebody, five very dedicated people do something and then everybody's like, holy shit, we can do that, you know? And um, it's sort of the dynamics of a protest and you, you know, 200 people follow the five people, dedicated people. And it seems like that's similar to what happened on on Wednesday. But that the, the problem is that once people see the image of the thing that is possible, it's not like they had to be there to understand that it's possible, right? So, like, well, like, is are you are you afraid right now? Like, are you are you worried about increasing escalation? Like, what what do you think the legacy of this is going to be in the next, let's say, like two years or something like that? I mean, I think I think um, I think everywhere is kind of Portland now. Um, or or every or like every. <laughs> kind of like liberal, liberal city everywhere is Portland. Uh, (laughs) um, I like Portland. It's fine. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I mean to say, I think that the, the, the protest dynamics, 
mm-hmm. um, that have developed over the past four years in Portland are going to become kind of paradigmatic. Uh, you know, you've in Portland, you had a situation where there was a, a growing and organized far right kind of in the like suburban and rural surroundings, um, primarily that would engage in these kind of confrontations with the organized left in the city that had a, and then everybody has like a very weird and contradictory relationship to the local government and the local, the, you know, the, the, the state apparatuses, um, where, the Proud Boys are referring to Mayor Wheeler as like the Antifa mayor, while everybody in the left in Portland hates the mayor as much as the Proud Boys do. Um, and the mayor is sending out Portland police to just beat up everybody. It's very strange. And, and or not beat up everybody, really, just to beat up, beat up the left. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that that is the dynamic is just going to be kind of writ large across the country now. That sounds horrible. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> I mean, maybe not. I hope not. I mean, I don't know. I like hope not, but I just think that's, I think that's the moment that we're in. Yeah. I mean, it seems on a, I, I, I agree with you. I think that, that, um, you know, we're going to see it during the inauguration. We're going to see it. They're going to take shots at politicians, obviously, you know, and there's going to just be a lot of a lot of this stuff going on. Um, OK, do you want to take some questions? And I because most yeah, of the questions see. that I see here are for, about this one topic. So I think it would be a good way to just keep talking about it, which is all right. So our first question is from Kemba Metropolis. Um, could you ask how this movement, oh, it's addressed to me, so yes. Um, how does this movement attract people who would not economically or socially benefit from nativism? So I think like the question is essentially like, why do some of these people who clearly like, you know, like, like I think you wrote about it in your book, which is like Tanton is from like the middle of, is, is from like Michigan. It's not like he's being overwhelmed by, you know, by, by, uh, immigrant minorities in the 19, in 1967 or something like that. And yet he, he, he really dedicates his life towards this. Um, yeah. How, how do they sort of reach people who don't have an automatic benefit from any of this stuff is Kemba's question. Yeah. I mean, that's a really critical question. Um, I think that there, I think there's a few different ways to answer this. Um, one is that so as you said you know the the some some of these some of these groups on the far right are actually surprisingly if somewhat like superficially diverse um and one of the things that i've been in have been interested in is like how does an organization like the proud boys attract um non-white members and the answer tends to be, well, they're not, those non-white members are often, I mean, they're all men. Uh, and then they're usually guys who are small business owners, people who have kind of entrepreneurial aspirations, people who 
if not if they're not actually upwardly mobile like aspire to be or think of themselves as people who ought to be and so what ends up being the case is that um like there is a there's a sense in which the nativist or anti-immigrant politics are I think a kind of way in to whiteness and like a kind of imagined sort of discursive wedge to access the material benefits of like assimilation into the like American white nationhood. And that that is like kind of what citizen citizenship is about there's something there yeah i have the same i had the same sort of dissonance that you had right where i would see photos of these guys or i would go see them in person you know not to hang out with them but as my job but like um and i would be people like oh these are all white supremacists and I'm like this these dudes are much more diverse than any magazine i've ever worked at you know or like it's much more diverse than you know like my parent group in brooklyn <laughs> you know like like what like it is like they have sort of shocking amount of diversity, a lot of them. And um, and so I, I do think there is something there about this idea that, like, I think that if you are an immigrant or if you're a, you know, quote, person of color or whatever, you're basically told that, like, you have to believe these things, but you most likely don't believe a lot of the stuff about, you know, that is put out by progressives, right? You kind of want to just buy a house and move out mm-hmm. to a nice place and have your kids and be able to make money. And that I think there's a lot of reactionary stuff against this assumption that you have to be about, you know, all these progressive values when most likely you're raised in a pretty conservative household. And I think that that sort of comes out. And for some of these guys, they decide to join up with something that they think represents patriotism to them. You know, like they love America. Mm -hmm. Like uh, they, they, you know, you hear a lot of stuff like I came here legally or my parents came here legally. Like, why can't, why can't these people come here legally? Um, uh, and some of them are very much in love with Western civilization because they look back at where they came from and are like, wow, that place fucked up, <laughs> you know, and then, <laughs> and then they're here, you know? So, yeah, I, I think that there's a, there's like a real draw towards it that, um, you can't just write off as being, oh, it's because they're stupid or because, you know, they're, they're, they uh, aren't masculine enough for stuff like that. It seems like there's a real ideological pull that they have that I don't think is going away. You know, like I don't, right. I think these, I think these groups will become more and more diverse as they, as the years go on. And I think calling them white supremacists at some point will not, will not fit anymore. We have to come up with some other term. Um, yeah. Okay. Next question is from J Ross, seven, three, nine, four with groups like the Lincoln project becoming more active. Are there ways to prevent sanitizing reactionary agendas? Denouncing Trump wins over white moderates, but their core policy is still the same. It's a great question. Is there a way to, what was the crux of the question? Are there ways to prevent sanitizing reactionary agendas, right? Like Mm. ways to basically say, um, you know, because all of this stuff, some of this stuff is going to be out in the streets and then some of it is going to be in, you know, boardrooms, right? Some of it is going right. to be like marketing campaigns. Some of it is going to be uh, 
uh, you know, Coca-Cola deciding to put out some slogan that appeases these people, right? Like it's, right. they're, they're different. And, and then some of it is going to be networks like Tantin, the ones that Tantin built that you describe in your book so well, there's five think tanks now, you know, they're loosely affiliated with, uh, Manhattan Institute or something like that. So yeah, like it's yeah. ways to, to sort of fight about it without just like, screaming at them on Twitter, which might be an, <laughs> might be an effective way, you know, I, I do it. So it's, it's personally satisfying to me, but you know, what, what, what do you think the best way is to prevent this sort of stuff from becoming institutionalized? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this, I think even the bigger question is looking at who is kind of facilitating that sanitization, which is to say that like during various fights over uh, like, you know, budget appropriations over, over the past couple of years in Congress, um, when Democrats would uh, make a big stink about not appropriating money for Donald Trump's border wall, Oftentimes, especially from from party leadership, the alternative that was offered was that or part of the critique was like, well, this is like a bad use of money because building a physical wall is not the most effective way to keep people who are making unauthorized border crossings out. And that like actually like we, the Democratic Party, want to spend this money on really ad, like advanced surveillance technology and drones and like artificial and like AI driven uh, uh, watchtowers. And I think that this is kind of the more dangerous shift where the assumptions are kind of taken for granted and then the debate becomes about how do we achieve this goal and sort of like to push back on that is what has to be done is to actually question like well like why does this have to be done in the first place like why do we need to militarize the border at all uh, and like, why are we ta- like, why are we pretending like that is just like, why is that just taken as a given? Um, I, I, that to me, I think is, is where the debate has to happen. Um, great. Yeah. Uh, next question is from Todd Freeberg, which is, and he asks, what are the speakers, uh, um, thoughts on what will or will not go down in state capitals on Sunday? I know you keep your ear to the ground on some of this by reflex. I don't know if you do. I, even beats I don't cover if it's like a bunch of people online. So kind of track them from time to time, you know, uh, yeah, mostly out of habit. But um, do you, have you, what, what do you think is going to happen going forward? I can't tell. Half of me thinks like we're going to have full chaos and the other half of me thinks it's going to be like uh, nothing happens, you know, and um, <laughs> usually nothing yeah. happens in the history of the world. Right. The result right. is nothing happens. But, um, but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that like mostly nothing will happen and then 
maybe something really bad will happen. (laughs) 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 Like, it's kind of like I was saying in the beginning, like it's really hard to kind of, to make categorical predictions about these kinds of things. And also like it's, it's happening in 50 States. Like, and it's just, it just takes one dude, you know, or one, like it all, all it takes is one guy. Yeah. Um, to sort of turn the whole thing into, something else right which uh seems to be i don't know that seems to be just the theme of of uh of all of this um all right our next question is from marcia berry she asked the right wing seems far more funded organized building huge effective ecosystems how do we seriously fight fascism especially since the united states hasn't lived through what fascism wreaks on a nation this is a question that I have all the time as well. What was the second part of that question? Um, well, how do we seriously fight this? Like if we on the left are, you know, yeah. not as good at organizing, not as good as building these like think tanks that influence policy. I don't know. I would push back a little bit, I think. I'd say that, you know, there is stuff, you know, like it's not like the left is without these things. But I think that the way that when the when the right does it, it's always it always seems a little bit more clever, you know, because they don't. They can be nihilist about it. They don't have to. They don't have to be earnest about things. Um, what, what do you think? What's the best way? Like, is what, what's the best way to sort of confront these giant networks of money, um, access, and and messaging? I think that the absolute prerequisite for a successful you know for a successful fight back is in the is in the revitalization of the labor movement in this country um and by that i don't just mean like we need to have like more and bigger unions but that's I, that is we do need more and bigger <laughs> we do need more and bigger unions, um, but what really I mean is a kind of paradigm shift in the way that the labor movement approaches its political project and an openness as well to kind of the dynamism and experimentation that we do see on the right. Like they will try anything in order to achieve their goals. They'll throw so much shit at the wall and see what sticks. And part of that is because they have basically infinite money so they can afford to. We do not have infinite, infinite money. Um, and we also have principles <laughs> as, you, as, as you said. So that make that, you know, creates some sort of guidelines that we have to operate within. Um, but I think that, you know, the, you know, the social base of any, mass anti-fascism uh has to be in the working class and the you know the labor movement is the kind of primary uh expression and articulation of that um but the labor movement in this country is pretty moribund um yeah and that was gonna be my you know that's gonna be my question to you i just wanted to relay this anecdote where i went to uh during the uprising over the summer i went to go see Angela Davis speak at the Port of Oakland, and it's you know like mm-hmm. radical longshoreman 
uh, union works out of that port. And uh, which is a very long history, you know, some good, some bad, but mostly, you know, certainly on the cutting edge of politics for for a labor union. And, you know, I, I was sitting around and I, or I was standing around there and I saw these young people there. A lot of people came out because it's Angela Davis. And I was, uh, I was struck by how the idea of like labor being an organizing force around these types of issues was new to a lot of the people who were there, right? Like mm-hmm. young people, like people from, and including not just students, not just young people in Oakland, but also some of these young tech people, you know, like people who have a lot mm-hmm. of money, a lot of resources, but who uh, supported, supported what was happening, you know, felt like what had happened to George Floyd was a, was, was terrible and wanted to see if there was something that they could do. And part of what they envisioned that they can do is come out to these things. Um, it also occurred to me that all the people who were speaking were really old. It also occurred to me that the port is going to be shut down and they're going to build some bullshit there, you know? Um, and that, that this is sort of a last hurrah for them. It is not a mm. launching point. And I think that that's like a, you know, it's a difficult thing to admit because you feel so emotional being there and, and, uh, but it's hard, you know, they are all old, you know, <laughs> like, it's mm-hmm. like the average age of the people are like 65. Um, I, I don't know if that's true of the, I assume it's not true of the union itself, but it's people who are speaking there. Um, Angela Davis herself is, you know, is, is old. And so like, well, how, how, like, how do you, how do you sort of get that to a new space where it doesn't feel so nostalgic anymore? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I mean, events like that, where you have movement elders who are able to articulate the kind of linkages between um, labor and the uprising and those and the the kind of illustrate the class character of the uprising. Um, those, I mean, those kinds of things are really important just because it's, it, you know, it's educational. <laughs> like you said, like there are plenty of people who probably apparently young people who probably went who didn't know um, or had, had never thought about it thought about it in that way. Um, so I think that like the more kinds of left institutions we have that can facilitate that kind of, um, not just education, but like, uh, uh, you know, provoke people's imaginations, um, to get people thinking about, you know, what are the new forms of organization that we can pursue, whether it's in a workplace union or something that is uh, uh, something else? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know um, that can carry the struggle forward and, you know, equally confront the establishment of the Democratic Party as well as you know, far right vigilantes, um, and, 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 you know, and, and confront both of those enemies, um, that like politically, like that has to happen. 
how to, how does that happen? I don't know. I'm not smart enough, <laughs> but like <laughs> I can see that like that's like the thing that needs to happen. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Either. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm with you. Like it would be great if there was one of those every day and then like, oh, it was one of them, you know, um, right. and that is not to seem hopeless about it. It's just sort of like, a, you know, I, I don't know. It's both alternately totally inspired by by the whole by everything. And then hard to see like where where it goes unless you know i don't know maybe i mean here i think that some of the energy does spill out into other places like campaign for carol fife to become part of the city council of oakland stuff like that but um you know sometimes you can't just trace it one-to-one you know sometimes it just pops up um all right here's the last question and it is from aw munt davis and from these connections and raveling, so to speak, what is the single best piece of advice you can give us in your study of how we can have better agency and promotion of against fascism? So I think it's a similar question, but you know, mm. I feel this way sometimes too, where I, you know, we both work in the media nominally, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I see the, the breadth and the effectiveness of right-wing media and you know, I feel a bit hopeless, right? Because I feel like there's a, there's very little that I can do to stop something from VDARE ex, uh, existing, right? Like VDARE, mm-hmm. these places are supposed to be fringe, but they're really not, you know? And it just seems like there's a lot of them. And uh, there are a lot of other, there are also a lot of left-wing podcasts and, and, <laughs> um, and publications. YouTube channels. And, and they are red, but they're not, they don't, I think, have the same reach, Right. And so I'm just like, well, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we confront all this stuff? Like, what can we do outside of getting mad about it? And then we always have, we're always at this disadvantage because it's, uh, um, you know, like I, I just remember the going, you know, covering a lot of this affirmative action talk and you know, it's like, we're at such a disadvantage from even just a discursive argumentative standpoint, because we have to stand up and we have to say, it's important to have diversity, you know, it makes the kids feel better, you know, like it, <laughs> it improves the, the, the it, it, all these things, you know, you have to like basically take all these sort of mushy stands on things. Whereas the other side can just be like Ted Cruz and just be like, let's ban the IRS, you know, like they come up with all sorts of like nihilist <laughs> platforms and, and like, you know, this is where like me as like a former debater, I just think about it. And it's just like the easiest position to always defend in debate was always just like, like have the president take over the entire government and run it as like a basic warring state, like a neoconservative argument, because it's totally nihilist. And anytime someone says something, you can just be like, facts don't care about your feelings type of thing. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, I agree with the question asker. where it's just like, sometimes I feel like uh, we're up against so much and that, you know, the things that we truly believe in are so difficult to articulate in a way that's convincing unless the person already feels that way. You know, like, mm. like what do you, what, 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 what advice would you give to uh, the, the person who has a question about, about confronting some of this stuff? I mean, I think that, I think I'll, I'll try and, I'll try and answer this in two parts. I think that the, you know, the one piece of advice that I have is like join an organization like that part of like when I feel despair, it is often because I am feeling disconnected from from the movement and from something that is 
bigger than myself, whether that's my union or <laughs> or my, my friends in DSA. Um, I think that organization of people is the thing that we have and can do better, better than the right. And then related to that, it is through organization that we can bring other people who may not agree with us on every single point or even a majority of, po- of political points, but through like different kinds of shared struggle, we can bring people into, um, into relationship with each other, into community with each other. And I have found that it's through that more than through like rhetoric or persuasion that people come to see the world differently. For sure. And, and like through like people learn, people learn through struggle and I've basically kind of given up on the idea that like anybody can be persuaded of anything. <laughs> like people have to come to it themselves. And the project is to like create the circumstances through which somebody comes to a different set of conclusions about how the world ought to be. Yeah. I that the, we have like a few more minutes here. And so like, you know, going off of that, I just wanted to ask you one more question, which is, you know, I think that I, over the, um, as you know, like my primary job for the past five or so years was covering protests and I had never expected anything like what happened this summer to happen. And, you know, like just, you know, outside of any sort of, you know, ridiculous objectivity that I would try and evince, like it was amazing to watch. Um, and I don't know what to, to make of it now, right. In the, in the rear view mirror, but like, it was, I never expected something of that worldwide. Yeah. You know, I'm getting emotional even thinking about it, but, uh, um, it, you know, my thought had always been, and you know, this was just from covering stuff at first, just as a journalist. And then you go to enough of these things and you feel like, you know, mm-hmm. what's happening, that this would be the best way for you know the left to organize itself. As you go to these things, people get tear gas, they become radicalized. You know, they see what the cops are, what they are. <laughs> that mm-hmm. seems like thousands of people got tear gas this summer and it is a radicalizing moment. You know, it's not just tear gas. It's going there, seeing Pete standing next to somebody feeling that sort of bond with them and that you, you, your life has changed and now you're going to do like go forward in the, in this sort of thing. Um, I don't, do you like, what, what do you think has happened? Like, do you think there has been a sea change? Because I don't, I, I do somewhat say, I do resist the idea that like, you know, well, what has changed, you know, and just like, it's just some, stuff in Seattle or Portland or whatever the police, but you know, I think that there's probably been a shift in a lot of people's mentality. Um, how, how do you go forward from that into building type of infrastructure that the right does, or do you even need it? You know, like, um, is this something that, you know, that perhaps is just about having people who are on the same side, you know, deciding some of this stuff or, you know, do we need to build our own, uh, fairs and stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't know if we, I don't know if there is much to be gained in trying to replicate the constellation of right-wing institutions, um, or the way that they have gone about it. Uh, 
partly because we just don't have the time. <laughs> like, like this is this is a this is a a decades long project that they have pursued, um, and like. Like the world is literally on fire. <laughs> like we we gotta like move a little bit more quickly. Um, but uh, I do think that it's not enough to just have. <laughs> I, I, it's not it's not enough to just have like people people protesting in the streets. Like we need organizations, we need institutions, we need specifically working class institutions um, that represent and can articulate the width and breadth and diversity and, and, and the really kind of infinite variety of the working class, um, but articulate its needs and its demands, you know, as a universal whole and as a, and as a subject. Um, and those, those just don't exist yet. I think that well, we are. Who do you think's doing the best job right now? The the best. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely a, can't. I mean, yeah, who's doing the it's best definitely, some, You know, probably some like uh, Trotskyite microsect uh, with with four people in it. No, I mean, I think I think I think that um, honestly, uh, like, you know, I'm, I'm biased because I am uh, an, a member, but I think it's the DSA. Um, I think that an organization like the DSA is going to be necessary to kind of reach the next stage um, of the, you know, of the struggle. Uh, but there are like there, you know, just just because it's the biggest, you know, doesn't mean that it is necessarily the best. Sure. <laughs> and there's lots of problems, lots of problems with the DSA. But we do need mass organizations like that um, to to radicalize the labor movement, to kind of make these connections, to, um, you know, make the, make the links between the, you know, the uprising in the summer and, you know, bringing those struggles into workplaces and into pe where people live, you know, without it reverting to like implicit bias training. Um, you know, to make sure that it contains, it reta retains its radical character. Um, I think but, the connection between those two is a little overdetermined at this point, you know? Like, I don't think what is anyone, What's overdetermined? I don't think that, you know, I think that people like to talk about and say that the only thing that happened out of the protests is that people have to go to silly diversity training and bias trainings, but I don't think that that's... First of all, oh, no, I don't think that. First of all, you have to go to those anyway, you know. Right. But, but secondly, like you know, maybe that industry grew a little bit, but the idea that that's like the threat to whatever radical promise was expressed during the summer, I think is a, I think it's a right wing talking point, you know. And you see the same pseudo right wing people make it over and over and over. Again. Yeah. Um, you know, much to my frustration. Um, all right. Well, I think that's the time we have uh, for now, Brennan. Thank you for writing this book. You know, I, I. I read it in a day. It's like a great read, you know, and I, that's, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think I learned quite a bit. It's, it's amazing to just see it laid out there, you know, and like I told, I told you in a previous conversation, I had this obsession with Steve Saylor and it like explained Steve Saylor in a way that was so Steve Saylor for the people watching. It's like a right wing race realist who I think is extremely influential, but you know, it explained where he came from who's funding him, who's paying for I, Steve, his blog, and also like, you know, who reads him, 
and why why he's making these arguments um and you know why we should maybe be worried about somebody like steve sailor um maybe not just see him as a crank who you know tweets at everybody in media um all right well is there uh well yeah so blood red lines how nativism fuels right it's available when is it available now brendan is it out now it's available for pre-order now pre-order. but it's officially out uh a week from today through January haymarket 19th. books through haymarket um, books or at an independent re- bookseller near you yeah yeah i'm gonna walk down to some of the many of those that we have here in berkeley and you know <laughs> pick it up uh all right well thanks man and um thank you everyone for watching and your questions Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.